0: I mean, it's kind of been taken away from me. I can't get up on stage. And a lot of comedians will tell you that the stage is their therapy. They get up there and they work out all their troubles. And I can relate to that. And now, you know, I don't have that outlet. I don't have that way to kind of process my life. And it's not fun.
1: One of my priorities as a fashion and beauty editor at Bustle is to make sure we're making our content as inclusive as possible, and that means giving a platform to diverse voices. It's a privilege to include writers and stories from people outside the dominant industry expectation—white, thin, rich, able-bodied, and so on. Doing that job, in addition to doing this podcast, has made me aware of something. It's not enough to want to see people with intersectional identities in a certain space, and it's not even enough to celebrate them when they make their way in. In order to truly make room for marginalized people to express themselves, we've got to acknowledge what it takes for them to get there, and actually do the work to make it happen. So how does that apply to this episode of the podcast? We're going to be talking to Allie Bruner, a comic with congenital muscular dystrophy, and her dad. Allie is confined to a wheelchair. Her condition means that her muscles don't develop properly and are incredibly weak. She also has trouble breathing. All things considered, she can't live independently. But that doesn't mean she doesn't have a life. In fact, she's become part of her local comedy scene in Kentucky. Coming
2: to the stage next is a very talented young lady. Make some noise for Miss Allie
0: Bruner! Hi, everyone. Ready to get awkward? So I'm single. And i thought I found the perfect guy for me online. So I was reading his profile, and he was like, I like a woman with herbs. It's so he says says, <laughs> And then he said he wanted someone like a piano being FWB. I went, all right, that's me. And then I learned that FWB does not stand for fully wheelchair-bound. <laughs>
1: Seeing someone like Allie in a wheelchair on a stage is a reason to celebrate. But what it takes to get her there, and now what it takes to keep her there, is a bit more complicated. I'm Amanda Richards. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Your website says... I laughed at the crippled dot com. Is that something that if I type that in right now, I laughed at the crippled dot com that it would redirect to your website?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so
1: the word like the word crippled is not something that people are comfortable with all the time.
0: Um, not not nowadays. You know, it used to be a popular term. You know, you still have hospitals that are, you know, hospital for crippled children and somewhere along the line, people got kind of butthurt about it, and now we're told we can't use it anymore, but I've never had a problem with it.
1: Do you have a problem with any kind of language? Like, I mean, what no. are there words you're
0: not uncomfortable with? Not at all. I mean, I, I feel like there's certain contexts where, you know, words are not completely appropriate, but, I mean, there's no word that I have never said.
1: Is, do you ever feel like people are overly cautious?
0: Oh, yeah. Like, all the time, you know, it's, you know, you're not handicapped, you're handicapable. You know, that kind of thing. Or one of my favorites was, you're not disabled, you're differently-abled, or as I like to call it, disabled. <laughs> you know, people don't like that I call myself crippled. Everybody always like to say yes. Like, the words I need to use to call myself. And there was one lady that was like, you're not handicapped, you're handicapable. Yeah. Followed by, you're not disabled, you're differently-abled. Whereas the cool kids call it defabled. <laughs> so I can call myself defabled. Great, so now I'm crippled, and I have a list. <laughs> the only people I hate more than that bitch. (laughs) Crippled people. (laughs) They're always stealing my thunder. And my good parking. (laughs) (laughs) And let's be honest. They're pretty much the mentors on the ass of humanity. Right? It's right to laugh with that guy's. You're not going to go to hell. Don't you know who else hates crippled people? Jesus. <laughs> Which is why there's a stairway to heaven.
1: So you're a comic, and when you get up there in front of people to like do your routine, do you get like this? Do you ever get like a feeling that they expect you to say certain things, or like do you ever feel like you have to start by being self-deprecating so that everybody's like, ha, 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 it's okay to laugh, you know?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, without that, you, I mean, you have to give the audience permission to laugh in any comedian, regardless of uh, ability or you know whatever whatever thing makes them different. When you have to address it, otherwise, it becomes a distraction. You know, if I get up there, and I just start going into something, you know, completely you know, irrelevant to what they see, then the entire time, they're, you know, they're looking at me like, wait a minute. Was she, does she know she's in a wheelchair? (laughs) And it's like they kind of, you start to see them look back and forth to one another, like looking for acknowledgement from someone else, like is anybody seeing this? I just like to think
1: about like someone named like Karen in the front <laughs> row, like, hey, you know, Vicky, do you think we should go up and tell her that she's in <laughs> a wheelchair? <laughs> yeah.
0: Like where where's her handler? You know? she <laughs> feel really loud up there.
1: So how do you usually start? Like what's your first what's your first joke? Or what I should say what has been one of your first jokes? Um
0: what, what the one I used to open with was I just like to let everybody know that I am not one of the good cripples uh, because I don't give a fuck about being an inspiration.
1: <laughs> and so people are like, "Yeah." how do people usually react to that? You usually get a laugh or does it land?
0: It usually does fairly well. Like probably about 50% in the room will laugh and then the other half is kind of still waiting, you know, to make sure it's all right. And then I'll you know, i follow up with a line like, you know, I love being the same because my fly has been down for twenty years and nobody's noticed. <laughs> and usually by that one, they're a little bit more at ease. You know, I'm fairly certain that the only reason I was born crippled was because God knew I wouldn't be able to resist the urge to become a stripper. Never plan on giving me the tits for it. (laughs) But if I ever follow that dream and become a stripper, I know what my name is going to be. Well, they're going to call me Marshmallow Fluff. Because I'm white, I'm sweet, and if you really enjoy me, your fingers are going to get sticky.
1: Do you think that, um? do you think, do you feel like a certain obligation to, to tell jokes about disability? Like, do you feel like, it's like, can you get material from anywhere else? Are people cool with hearing that too? Or do they all, they want it all to be like, you know, <laughs> hilarious disability content?
0: Actually, for the most part, you know, the main criticism that I get is that I do too much about my disability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and... Mm-hmm. I enjoy that, though. I mean, it's... You know, I... A lot of comedians are not just stand-up comedians. We're writers, and we're... You know, we attack all different platforms. I use the other platforms that I write for to write my non-disability stuff. But when I'm on stage, the only character that I have to write for is myself. And that's kind of the only platform where I get to be. 100% whoever I want to be. So I like doing a lot of disability stuff just for that reason because that's somewhere that I have that outlet. One of the biggest things that I have trouble with is creating new content because I am such a control freak that if I don't have confidence that a joke will work, I don't even try it. and That's that's not good when you're comedian, you know, you have to be able to take some risks and try different things. And I'm still not completely comfortable with that.
1: Have you ever made a joke that, like, you were really confident in and you were like, this is going to kill. And then it just fell flat on its face.
0: Um, I have one joke and it's really, really dark. But I tell it all the time just because it makes me laugh on the inside.
1: Can you tell us right now?
0: Yeah, okay, okay. I had a warning though. It didn't start. I've realized I am the worst degree of disabled because I'm too crippled to kill myself but not crippled enough to convince someone else to do it for me. (laughs) I'm I'm not saying that I want to, but what I'm getting at is what's your excuse? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's it.
1: What is the most hilarious thing about being disabled?
0: Oh, man. So many different people seeing me naked.
1: How many people per day?
0: I mean, Maybe not per day, but, like, you know, you go back all through my life. You know, you met doctors nurses you know random assistants hundreds if not thousands of people on that list by now so
1: thousands of people have seen you naked and not in a sexual sense
0: unfortunately no I mean a much shorter list (laughs) and they didn't even pay for it (laughs) (laughs) oh man I feel like
1: I feel like that, that's hilarious, but I feel like there has to be – that's, like, the obvious one to me. Not not that I would fucking know, but, like, I just <laughs> – you know, I have no idea. But – and also, like, do people get mad at you when you talk about how funny it is to be disabled? Like,
0: oh, those yeah. are the <laughs> People get so defensive when I point out that my life is better than theirs. Because that's something, like, people want to believe that I am miserable, that I hate my life, you know, that I want to change – Everything about who I am, and in reality, in a lot of ways, my life is pretty awesome.
1: What's the most awesome thing about your life? I mean, I asked you the funny, sh- funny shit about being disabled, but what? Was there, like, no, no jokes, you know, or maybe some jokes. But <laughs> what do you love most? Comedy. I mean, honestly,
0: <laughs> like you know, not just you know performing comedy, not just the humor that comes from being a comedian, but like the community of being a comedian because you meet some of the most incredible people in this world doing comedy and I don't mean just you know other comedians but you know you know um you know comedy club managers and venue staff and you know audience regulars they're just some of the most amazing people that you will ever meet
1: so Considering the fact that you just said that's the most awesome part of your life, earlier in the conversation you said, it's been so long since I've been able to do a show. Mm -hmm. Um, How
0: long has it been? The last show I did was early March.
1: And the reason Allie's last show was so long ago is where the story gets complicated. (music) Allie isn't getting the home care she needs. A few weeks ago, she wrote a long Facebook post about how her state is failing her. Instead, her dad's taking care of her basically full-time.
0: So, uh, my dad's here tonight, guys.
1: Yeah. The reason that got such a big laugh, by the way, is because Allie just finished telling a pretty raunchy joke.
0: And, uh, he, uh, he drives me to most of my shows, and people always wonder if it's awkward for him to hear me speak so candidly about sex. And I asked him once, He said, You know, it's no worse than buying your coupons every month. So naturally, I asked, Then, yeah, but would you buy me condoms? If I asked you to, you should have seen the disappointment on his face when he said, Hell no. What kind of father do you think I am? I'd grab him out of my nightstand. And what's your dad's name? Ron. And you can say
1: hi. Hi there. Hi. Hi, Ron. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, so we are talking to Allie a little bit about her comedy. And the first question I want to ask you is, do you think she's funny?
2: Oh, yeah. She's got a different twist to it. But, uh, yeah, she can come up with some stuff.
1: So you take her to the shows. And then do you stay and watch? Yeah. Yeah. How
0: many have you seen?
2: Oh, God, um, I don't know.
0: Hundreds, probably. <laughs> And, like, about 95% of all the shows I've done, he's been there. That's amazing. That's a that's a,
1: a lot of support. Yeah. I'm a lucky gal. So then, of course, like, you take Allie to all the shows. And then um, at home, you take care of her. And, you know, it's been for, she just said, the last, like, five or six years. So how has that sort of, like, impacted you, like, on a day-to-day basis?
2: Well, get up, get her ready, get her something to eat, uh, whatever she needs to do, bathroom and everything else, and then I'm still working. You know, got a mortgage to pay, got bills to pay. Uh, I work part-time, so then by the time I come home from work, uh, uh, until recently when we had getting a little bit of assistance and get her lunch, bathroom, whole nine yards there, get myself something to eat, and then evening, just the same thing, get her ready for ready for bed and start the next day out the same.
1: So, but right now there's, like Allie's told us a little bit about uh, the fact that your knee is impeding you from, you know, taking care of her and not being in, in pain all the time?
2: Well, I, I need a total knee replacement on the, on the left side, just rubbing bone to bone. So, uh, and it's been that way for you know, at least the last year. That's why we're trying to get some assistance to where I can have it done. You just do what you got to do.
1: Allie, it, it's probably hard to sum up, but what is it like to have a parent taking care of you at 28? Like, does it, is it something you've just sort of, it's just part of your life day to day. So you just like accept it or do you have particular feelings about it? I mean, what's that like, that experience?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it is just like, You know, I don't really have an opinion on it because that's just reality. You know, it's. I feel like some other people might see it as kind of weird. And sometimes I wish more people were comfortable with it. Because some really funny shit happens when he's taking care of me. And I wish that I could talk about it in a way that didn't make people uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, for me it's kind of just routine, you know. It's it's not really weird for me. What about you, Dad?
2: No, I, I guess it'd be different if, you know, at 28 I started taking care of you, something like that. It might be a bit weird, but, you know, it's what a parent should do. I mean... It doesn't bother me, regardless of what it is. You know, I've, I've done it all her life, so you grow up with it. So it's it's nothing really weird.
0: And I mean, one other thing is, before I was born, Dad had, you know, kind of a background in the medical field. So he's used to, you know, the human body, and he's probably seen more period blood than most women. So <laughs> it's kind of just second nature, well, that's the next thing. Not period blood.
1: That wasn't my next point. But the next thing I wanted to ask was go, to go back to, you know, the thing you said about so much funny shit happening and you wish it wouldn't make people uncomfortable. Do you? I mean, I can't obviously relate to that, like, situation, but I could see where you two would find it humorous day to day. So what are some, like, good examples of that? I mean, besides period blood.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um. I mean a lot of things period related. I don't know, but just stories of funny things that happen, you know, like when I'm in the shower or, you know, like the situations we get into where, you know, he's got to help me in, you know, some compromising situations. Like, you know, like going into a women's restroom with me and there's a lot of potential for, you know, amusing shenanigans instead of just the random crap we talk about during those times, I feel like unless people can relate to it, they aren't going to see the humor in it. Because that's a big part of humor is, you know, being able to relate and identify with something, I guess. What do you think, Ned? I,
2: I don't think, unless you're in the, the circumstance or situation, I don't I don't think you can understand it. You know, I could sit here and tell you step by step my entire life as it goes, and you can think you can understand it, but you can't unless it's happening to you. And and that's a lot of things, you know, that that people, yeah, they they can relate to it possibly, but unless they're put into a situation and have actually done it, you can't understand it. Yeah. If you had a problem with migraines every day, and tell me how bad it hurts, I, okay, I can relate to it a little bit, but I can't understand it because it's not, it doesn't happen to me.
0: Why do you think it is that, you know, like, our situations where I'm, like, in the bathroom and that kind of thing, why do you think it would be hard for other people to see the humor in the things that we see?
2: Hmm... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I don't know it, it just things come up you don't expect and it's funny you yeah. know yeah. farts are funny you know it's
0: <laughs> very true
2: yeah
0: we have a lot of
1: farts around here
2: they always tear me up
1: <laughs> I mean farting is always funny no matter if I can understand it not understand it I can always relate <laughs> you know? in any situation can relate
2: to yeah. some <laughs> won't some won't admit it but they'll relate to it
1: Farts are universally hilarious. Farts are universally hilarious. But you know what isn't hilarious or universal? And I'm obviously not kidding when I say this. Healthcare. Ron's access to healthcare isn't the issue. He's covered by Medicaid and says he could get surgery whenever he wants. However, he's also Allie's primary caregiver. And that means he can't afford to be sidelined for weeks without someone to replace him by Allie's side.
2: Well, I'm Allie's 100% caregiver. And until her needs are met on a regular basis, you know, I can't be laid up because there is no one to, to help take care of her. And, you know, I can't, you know, it sounds stupid, but I can't say, okay, Allie, you know, for next two months, you can't piss her, you can't do anything. You know, she's got, she's got to have the care. And I'm not going to be able to even to lift her for a minimum of two months.
1: Allie's covered by Medicaid, too. She has been since she turned 18, but she still had a tough time getting enough assistance at home. How long have you been trying to get someone to come in full-time so that R- Ron can
0: have a surgery? Uh, this whole process, we started a year ago. So it- Over a year ago now. We started the, the, the application process in June of last year, and that whole idea was trying to navigate The application process is kind of a nightmare. Um, I think I've been officially approved for services since October. So it's been since October that we've been kind of trying to find an agency willing to do the staffing.
1: Allie says her limited access to assistance points to a bigger trend. Home care providers, which get funds from Medicaid, have trouble attracting and keeping workers. The Paraprofessional Healthcare Institute reported last year that home care workers make $13,300 a year on average. The report also says that benefits are rare, the work is often part-time, and more than half of the workers in this sector depend on public assistance. Caitlin Connolly is an expert on this workforce over at the National Employment Law Project. She tells us that home care workers are often forced out of a job. Here's a quick word from Caitlin. They want to stay in this field. But the low wages, the erratic scheduling, the lack of full-time positions often, and the the lack of benefits really make it hard to do this work and to stay in it. Some some workers are basically forced out of this work. We we know that like turnover data, um, it it varies. It's it's somewhat hard to track, but you know we say it's at least 60% annual turnover rates, it's just very hard to make a living out of this work. What all this means for Allie is that she's still waiting for more help at home, more than a year after applying for it. In her Facebook post, Allie describes a program that, quote, allows me to pee once a day and shower once a week. As we discussed all this, Allie and her dad were pretty forthcoming about what their worst case scenario is.
2: Grin and Barry, keep on doing what we're doing until I can't walk anymore.
0: Yeah, I mean, pretty much... We'll continue doing what we're doing and hope that Dad can toughen out. A worst-case scenario would mean that, you know, his knee completely gives out and he can't take care of himself, much less me, in which case I will be in a nursing home. I think that's probably the worst case.
1: Well, you know, if... That If the worst-case scenario were to happen and your knee blows out, Ron, and then you have to move to a nursing home, this is, like, a temporary nursing home stay for two months? Or would you have to, like, go live there indefinitely based on, like, the terms of – how does that work? Um,
2: well, hopefully two to three months I'll be back in shape uh, if everything goes right. Yeah, if, that's what if, if something turns out and goes wrong, I may ne- never be able to walk again. I don't know. So – What we're actually trying to get set up is a long-term solution to where if something does go wrong, then she will still be taken care of outside of a nursing home.
0: Yeah, that's the biggest thing is, you know, I've had people to offer, you know, well, we'll set up a, you know, GoFundMe account, and, you know, can you set up with, you know, a private pay agency or whatever. But the problem with that is, you know, that's not indefinitely sustainable, you know, before he can get operated on. I have to know that whatever we do can last possibly the rest of my life because there's, you know, a chance that he might not fully recover. Hopefully he will. But, you know, it, there's no guarantee with that. So these are like huge, uh,
1: I don't even know what to call it, like life. Life worries, but then sort of going back to the beginning of our conversation, day to day, the thing that you care about the most, you told me that you're most passionate about that makes your life the most awesome, which is comedy, you can't you can't do it. So in addition to having like all of these like big picture dreadful things, you know, kind of swirling through your mind, you can't like express yourself day to day doing the thing you love.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean it's kind of been Taken away from me. I can't get up on stage. And a lot of comedians will tell you that the stage is their therapy. They get up there and they work out all their troubles. And I can relate to that. And now, you know, I don't have that outlet. I don't have that way to kind of process my lights. And it's not fun. And
1: if you, if you wanted to book another show, like is it just impossible with ron with your leg you can't yeah yeah
2: i'm actually still working Mm -hmm. uh but it it takes so much energy because i do apartment maintenance it's three stories so up and down steps just trying to do what i need to do by the time you get home it's you're out and Mm -hmm. all the the comedy shows uh you do a double show and you don't get home till three or four o'clock in the morning. So, and I don't bounce back from no sleep for, you know, it, like I did when I was 18. <laughs> so it, it really makes it ex- exhausting and then try to go back to work Monday.
0: Yeah. So it's more just, you know, he, he is too exhausted you know able to drive me, you know, back and forth, which is the main reason that I haven't been able to do it. And, you know, when you book comedy shows, you book ahead of time. You know, you usually at least a month, if not two or three. And right now, I don't know what a month or two months from now is going to look like. So I can't commit to a performance when I don't know if I'm going to have care. I don't know how much pain he might be in. And, it's, you know, I don't want to commit to something and have to cancel because... That's really frowned upon in comedy. So I just kind of have to sit on the back burner and wait till something changes. So imagine
1: that it was the best case scenario and you guys got the aid that you need and you got a home health care worker that you trust and that does a great job and everything is perfect. (laughs) Does this mean, I mean, during this time, have you been, it's hard when we talk about This Medicaid shit, it's, like, so uh, complicated and um, boring. And and not boring in the sense of, like, I'm bored with what you're saying, but you know what I mean. Right, and Um, all the
2: details. You know, the real sad part about it is if you call Medicaid, they can't give you information. They don't know. They don't know who to send you to. Hell, I've been transferred to Paducah. And, And they said... I don't know why they transfer you here. We don't take care of your county, so I don't either. They're just transferring me all over the freaking place.
0: Yeah, we're trying to make a phone call and trying to get an answer, and you know, end up in a in a chain of being transferred, and eventually end up back with the person we started with It's kind of a kind of a mess because nobody knows how it works. Allie, are you able to like write
1: jokes about this? I mean, are you writing right now at home? Are you are you writing comedy in the meantime? About maybe even about this? I don't know. Can <laughs> it be funny at
0: all? Uh, I'm trying. You know, it's all so like, heavy and still kinda so I don't know, just new that it's hard to hard to find the humor in it. Um yeah, I'm trying to write, but it's it's also distracting that I haven't really produced anything of any kind of value. I hope to. I mean, I hope that there comes a point when I can see how funny it all is. And I mean, I do find it funny, but trying to express the humor in it in a way that makes it understandable to you know everyday people is very difficult.
2: It's hard to it's hard to write about something that's so frustrating in a funny way.
1: I think when people hear stories like Allie's, they want to believe that at the end of it all, good will prevail and the inspirational heroine will get the help she needs and continue to thrive. Truthfully, though, the conclusion of Allie's story remains to be seen. Allie will need care for the rest of her life, and whether it's Ron, a home care aide, or a nursing home employee providing that care depends on a lot of factors, most of which are outside of her control. The future of Obamacare, for instance, is unclear. Though Congress ended up leaving it intact in recent weeks, repeal could still be back on the Republican agenda in the future. More than 70% of Kentucky's Medicaid is funded by the federal government. Caitlin Connolly, who we heard from earlier, says that cuts to Medicaid which most versions of Obamacare repeal had, could leave people like Allie out in the cold even more. All things considered, it's pretty remarkable that Allie still has the ability to make jokes about her situation, to speak about it candidly and honestly. She might not be able to get on stage at a local comedy club, but she's using social media as a platform. Allie wants people to know that she's a woman in a wheelchair. She's fighting an uphill healthcare battle. And yes, she's really damn funny. And if we want to hear more from her about all of it... We've got to do more than just listen. I want to thank Allie and Ron for coming on the show and sharing their story. I also want to thank Anna Parsons, our producer. This episode required a particularly large amount of research and reporting, and I want to give a special shout out to my producer and co editor, Pierre Bienname, for taking the time to do that. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode.